All right, everyone. Uh, welcome to Bond Breakdown number three, where we go over Goldfinger. Um, but before I get into that, uh, let me just say there was a brief uh, freakout moment that I had during this podcast. It was because I was doing it in the garage, and uh, there's a bunch of wasps just flying in and out, and one flew right by me, and I was just tired of them like being in my general vicinity. Uh, but as I was going through editing it, I just started laughing and I couldn't stop. And I figured it was, for me, it was just too good not to leave in. So uh, it comes like 10 minutes in or something like that. But I just figured I'd give you a fair warning. Because <laughs> if I didn't, you'd be like, what in the world was that? But yeah, with that being said, let's just get into it. You're now listening to the Lone Wolf, Lone Wolf, Lone Wolf, the Lone Wolf podcast. Welcome to Bond Breakdown number three, where we discuss the third installation of the Bond film franchise, Goldfinger. And without further ado, let's get into it. All right, so I will first say, uh, and foremost, that I like the film, but this is a case where I like the song more, the theme song more. Uh, It's probably actually one of my favorite songs out of all of them, even though Adele's Skyfall is just incredible. I mean, she she really deserved that uh, the Oscar for the best I guess, best soundtrack song or whatever that she won back in 2012 or 13. Uh, but yeah, Goldfinger is just amazing. It's a classic. Actually, both both songs that Shirley Bassey has sung for the the Bond film franchise are like in my top five. Uh, one of them being Goldfinger and the other one being uh, Diamonds Are Forever. But man, she just got such class and such power in a performance that it, it just matches Bond perfectly. But uh, yeah, it's... Unfortunately, the case. Uh, good film, uh, but uh, I just like the song better. It doesn't mean it's bad. It just I like it better. <laughs> but I love the opening scene in this one. Uh, so what happens is he comes from the water with a wetsuit and a duck decoy on his head. Gets out of the water, takes off the suit, only to be wearing a white dinner tuxedo with a, fl- a flower on the lapel underneath it. Uh, he makes his way into what looks like a chemical plant container. Uh, but in there, there's like a private party happening, you know, dancers, gambling, etc., like that. Uh, so flash forward, uh, Bond enters a room with a lady in it who's taking a bath. Bond seduces her like he always does, but while he's kissing her, he's kind of suspicious and good for it because he sees a man approaching him from behind in the reflection of the girl's eyes. A really cool technique on the filmmaking part. I feel like it was kind of like Hitchcockian, um, but... When the man gets close, he twists her around so she gets knocked unconscious. Then he proceeds to fight. At the climax of the fight, uh, the antagonist reaches for Bond's holstered gun by the tub. But in a moment of defense, Bond throws an electric fan into the tub, killing him. Then he says, in my opinion, one of the most uh, memorable Bond quips. Shocking. Positively shocking. And before I get into describing the plot and the writing and all that stuff, let me just say, um, if you do happen to listen to this podcast and you're a big Bond fan and you you know you love Aston Martins, you love the Bond franchise, for $150 you can uh, buy the Aston Martin DB5 uh, from Lego. 
but let me just get into uh, kind of what they said it's about. So uh, 1,295 pieces, or 1,295 pieces, uh, come together to create a working replica of the 1964 DB5 modified by Q to help Agent 007 wreak havoc on the baddies. Even with a working passenger ejector seat, concealable machine guns, and revolving license plates. So on to the production of the film. With the court based between Kevin McKintry and Fleming surrounding Thunderball, still in the high court, producers Albert Broccoli and Harry Saltzman turned to Goldfinger as the third Bond film. Goldfinger had what was then considered a large budget of $3 million, $24 million in 2017 dollars, the equivalent of the budgets of Dr. Noah and From Russia With Love combined, and was the first Bond film classified as a box office blockbuster. Goldfinger was chosen with the American cinema market in mind, as the previous films had concentrated on the Caribbean and Europe. Tian Chung, who directed the previous two films, chose the film The Amorous Adventures of Maul Flanders instead, after a pay dispute that saw him denied a percentage of the film's profits. Broccoli and Saltzman turned instead to Guy Hamilton to direct. Hamilton, who had turned down directing Dr. No, felt that he needed to make Bond less of a Superman by making the villain seem more powerful. Hamilton knew Fleming, as both were involved during intelligence matters in the Royal Navy during World War II. Goldfinger saw the return of two crew members who were not involved with From Rush With Love, stunt coordinator Bob Simmons and production designer Ken Adam. Both played crucial roles in the development of Goldfinger, with Simmons choreographing the fight sequence between Bond and Oddjob in the vault of Fort Knox, which was not just seen as one of the best Bond fights, but also must stand as one of the great cinematic combats. Whilst Adam's efforts on Goldfinger were luxuriantly Baroque and have resulted in the film being called one of the finest pieces of his work. On to the writing. Richard Maibum, who co-wrote the previous films, returned to adapt the seventh James Bond novel. Maibum fixed the novel's heavily criticized plot hole, where Goldfinger actually attempts to empty Fort Knox. In the film, Bond notes it would take 12 days for Goldfinger to steal the gold. Before the villain reveals, he actually intends to irritate it with the topical concept of a red Chinese atomic bomb. However, Harry Saltzman disliked the first draft and brought in Paul Den to revise it. Hamilton said Den brought out the British side of things. Connery disliked his draft, so my bum returned. Den also suggested the pre-credit sequence to be an action sequence with no relevance to the actual plot. Wolf Mankiewicz... An uncredited screenwriter on Dr. No suggested the scene where Oddjob puts his car into a car crusher to dispose of Mr. Solo's body. Because of the quality of work of My Bum and Den, the script and outline for Goldfinger became the blueprint for future Bond films. On to the filming. Principal photography on Goldfinger commenced on January 20th, 1964. God damn it! These fucking bees in here. <sighs> Let me redo that again, son of a bitch. Principal photography on Goldfinger commenced on January 20th, 1964 in Miami, Florida at the Fontainebleau Hotel. The crew was small, consisting of only Hamilton, Broccoli, Adam, and cinematographer Ted Moore. Sean Connery never traveled to Florida to film Goldfinger because he was filming Marnie elsewhere in the United States. On the DVD audio commentary, director Guy Hamilton states, other than Sec Linder, who played Felix Leiter, None of the main characters in the Miami sequence were actually there. Connery, Gert Frobe, Shirley Eaton, Margaret Nolan, who played Dink, and Austin Willis, who played Goldfinger's car victim, all filmed their parts on a soundstage at Pinewood Studios. Miami also served as location to the scenes involving the leader's pursuit of odd job. After five days in the U.S., production moved to England. 
The primary location was Pinewood Studios, home to, among other sets, a recreation of the Fountain Blue, the South American city of the pre-title sequence, and both Goldfinger's estate and factory. Three places near the studio were used. Black Park for the car chase involving Bonds, Aston Martin, and Goldfinger's henchmen inside the factory complex, and Stoke Park Club for the golf club scene. The end of the chase when Bonds, Aston Martin crashed into a wall because of the mirror and the chase immediately preceding it were filmed on the road at the rear of Pinewood Studios town stages A and E. The road is now called Goldfinger Avenue. South End Airport was used for the scene where Goldfinger flies to Switzerland. Ian Fleming visited the set of Goldfinger in April 1964. He died a few months later in August 1964, shortly before the film's release. The second unit filmed in Kentucky and these shots were edited into scenes filmed at Pinewood. Principal photography then moved to Switzerland, with the car chase being filmed at the small curved roads near Rialp. The exterior of the Pilatus Air Factory in Stans, serving as Goldfinger's factory, and Tilly Masterson's attempt to snipe Goldfinger being shot in the Furka Pass. Filming wrapped on July 11th at Andermatt after 19 weeks of shooting. Just three weeks prior to the film's release, Hamilton and a small team, which included Broccoli's stepson and future producer Michael G. Wilson as assistant director, went for last-minute shoots in Kentucky. Extra people were hired for post-production issues such as dubbing so the film could be finished in time. Broccoli earned permission to film the Fort Knox area with the help of his friend, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Russian, to shoot Pussy Galore's flying circus gassing the soldiers. The pilots were only allowed to fly above 3,000 feet. Hamilton recalled this was hopeless, so they flew at about 500 feet, and the military went absolutely apeshit. The scenes of people fainting involved the same set of soldiers moving to different locations. For security reasons, filming and photography were not allowed near or inside the United States Bullion Depository. All sets for the interiors of the building were designed and built from scratch at Pinewood Studios. The filmmakers had no clue as to what the interior of the depository looked like, so Ken Adams' imagination provided the idea of gold stacked upon gold behind iron bars. Adam later told UK Daily Newspaper, The Guardian, No one was allowed in Fort Knox, but because producer Cubby Broccoli had some good connections and the Kennedys love Ian Fleming's books, I was allowed to fly over it once. It was quite frightening. They had machine guns on the roof. I was also allowed to drive around the perimeter, but if you got out of the car, there was a loudspeaker warning you to keep away. There was not a chance of going in it, and I was delighted because I knew from going to the Bank of England vaults that gold isn't stacked very high, and it's all underwhelming. It gave me the chance to show the biggest gold repository in the world as I imagined it, with gold going up to heaven. I came up with this cathedral-type design. I had a big job to persuade Cubby and the director Guy Hamilton first. Saltzman disliked the design's resemblance to a prison, but Hamilton liked it enough that it was built. The comptroller of Fort Knox later sent a letter to Adam and the production team, complimenting them on their imaginative dis depiction of the vault. United Artists even had irate letters from people wondering, how could a British film unit be allowed inside Fort Knox? Adam recalled, In the end, I was pleased that I wasn't allowed into Fort Knox, because it allowed me to do whatever I wanted. In fact, the set was deemed so realistic that Pinewood Studios had to post a 24-hour guard to keep the gold bar props from being stolen. Another element which was original was the atomic device, to which Hamilton requested that special effects crew get inventive instead of realistic. Technician Bert Luxford described the end result as looking like an engineering work, with a spinning engine, a chronometer, and other decorative pieces. On to the effects.
Hamilton remarked, Before Goldfinger, gadgets were not really a part of Bond's world. Production designer Kit Adam chose the DB5 because it was the latest version of the Aston Martin. The company was initially reluctant, but was finally convinced to make a product placement deal. In the script, the car was armed only with a smokescreen, but every crew member began suggesting gadgets to install on it. Hamilton conceived the revolving license plate because he had been getting lots and lots of parking tickets. His stepson suggested the ejector seat. A gadget near the lights that would drop sharp nails was replaced with an oil dispenser because the producers thought the original could be easily copied by viewers. Adam and engineer John Steers overhauled the prototype of the Aston DB5 coupe, installing these and other features into a car over six weeks. The scene where the DB5 crashes was filmed twice, with the second take being used in the film. The first take, in which the car drives through the fake wall, can be seen in the trailer. Two of the gadgets were not installed in the car. The wheel-destroying spikes, inspired by Ben-Hur's synced chariots, were entirely made in the studio, and the ejector seat used a seat thrown by compressed air, with a dummy sitting atop it. Another car without the gadgets was created, which was eventually furnished for publicity purposes. It was reused for Thunderball. Lasers did not exist in 1959 when the book was written, nor did high-power industrial lasers at the time the film was made, making them a novelty. In the novel, Goldfinger uses a circular saw to try and kill Bond, but the filmmakers change it to a laser to make the film feel fresher. Hamilton immediately thought of giving the laser a place in the film's story as Goldfinger's weapon of choice. Ken Adam was advised on the laser design by two Harvard scientists who helped design the water reactor in Dr. No. The laser beam itself was an optical effect added in post-production. For close-ups where the flame cuts through metal, for close-ups where the flame cuts through metal, technician Bert Luxford heated the metal with a blowtorch from underneath the table to which bomb was strapped. The opening credit sequence was designed by graphic artist Robert Brownjohn, featuring clips of all of James Bond's films thus far projected on Margaret Nolan's body. Its design was inspired by seeing light projecting on people's bodies as they got up and left the cinema. The film uses many golden motifs to parallel Gold's symbolic treatment in the novel. All of Goldfinger's female henchmen in the film, except a private jet's co-pilot and stewardess, are red, blonde, or blonde, including Pussy Galore and her flying circus crew. Goldfinger has a yellow-painted Rolls Royce with number plate AU1, AU being the chemical symbol for gold, and also sports yellow or golden items or clothing in every film scene, including a golden pistol. Bond is bound to a cutting bench with a sheet of gold on it. Goldfinger's factory henchmen in the film wear yellow sashes. Pussy Galore twice wears a metallic gold vest, and Pussy's pilots all wear yellow sunburst insignia on their uniforms. Goldfinger's jet star hostess, Mai Lee, wears a golden bodice and gold-accented sarong. The concept of the recurring gold theme running through the film was a design aspect conceived and executed by Ken Adam and art director Peter Merton. The model jet used for wide shots of Goldfinger's Lockheed Jetstar was painted differently on the right side to be used as the presidential plane that crashes at the film's end. Several cars were provided by the Ford Motor Company, including a Mustang that Tilly Masterson drives, a Ford Country Squire station wagon used to transport Bond from the airport to the stud ranch, a Ford Thunderbird driven by Felix Leder, and a Lincoln Continental in which Odd Job kills Solo. The Continental had its engine removed before being placed in a car crusher. 
and the destroyed car had to be partially cut so that the bed of the Ford Falcon Ranchero in which it was deposited could support the weight. Alrighty, now on to the plot. After destroying a dread lab in Latin America, James Bond, Agent 007, travels to Miami Beach to receive instructions from his superior, M, via CIA agent Felix Leader. He is to observe bullion dealer Arik Goldfinger at the hotel there. Bond sees Goldfinger cheating in gin rummy and stops him by distracting his employee, Jill Masterson, and blackmailing Goldfinger into losing. After Bond and Jill consummate their new relationship, Bond is knocked out by Goldfinger's Korean manservant, the hulking giant, Eyejob. When Bond awakens, he finds Jill dead, covered in gold paint, having died from skin suffocation. In London, the Chancellor and M explained to Bond that gold prices vary across the world, allowing one to profit by selling bullion internationally, and his objective is determining how Goldfinger does it by smuggling. Bond arranges to meet Goldfinger socially at the country club in Kent and wins a high-stakes golf game against him with a recovered Nazi gold bar at stake. Bond follows him to Switzerland, where Tilly, Jill's sister, makes an unsuccessful attempt at revenge by firing a rifle at Goldfinger. Oddjob kills Tilly with his hat, and Bond is captured and tied to a cutting table underneath an industrial laser, which begins to slice a sheet of gold in half, with Bond lying over it. Bond then lies to Goldfinger that MI6 knows nothing about Grand Slam, causing Goldfinger to spare Bond's life to mislead MI6 into believing Bond has things in hand. Bond is transported by Goldfinger's private jet, piloted by Pussy Galore, to his stud farm near Fort Knox, Kentucky. Bond escapes and witnesses Goldfinger's meeting with U.S. Mafiosa, who have brought the materials he needs for Operation Grand Slam. Although they are each promised one million, Goldfinger tempts them that they could have the million today or ten million tomorrow, and relates Grand Slam, revealed to be his plan to rob Fort Knox. He then kills them using Delta-9 nerve gas he plans to release over Fort Knox. Bond is recaptured and tells Goldfinger his plan to rob the gold repository will not work, as he will not have enough time to move the gold before the Americans intervene. Goldfinger hints he does not intend to steal the gold, and Bond deduces that Goldfinger will detonate a dirty bomb inside the vault, designed to render the gold useless for 58 years. This will increase the value of Goldfinger's own gold and give the Chinese an advantage from the potential economic chaos. He will simply have it detonated somewhere of significance in the United States. Operation Grand Slam begins with Pussy Galore's flying circus spraying the gas over Fort Knox. However, Bond had seduced Galore and convinced her to replace the nerve gas with a harmless substance and alert the U.S. government about Goldfinger's plan. The military personnel of Fort Knox play dead until they are certain that they can capture the bomb and prevent the criminals from escaping. Believing the military forces to be neutralized, Goldfinger's private army breaks into Fort Knox and accesses the vault itself as Goldfinger arrives in a helicopter with the atomic device. In the vault, his henchman Kish handcuffs Bond to the bomb. The troops arise and attack, killing many of Goldfinger's men. Seeing this, Goldfinger closes the vault, takes off his coat, revealing a U.S. Army colonel's uniform, and kills Mr. Ling and several troops seeking to open the vault that makes his escape. Kish realizes he is trapped and attempts to stop the bomb, but Oddjob throws him to his death. Bond grabs Kish's handcuff keys and frees himself, but Oddjob repeatedly attacks him before he can disarm the bomb. Eventually, Bond manages to electrocute Oddjob, then forces the lock off the bomb using the gold bullion bars from the vault, but ultimately is unable to disarm it. 
After finally killing all of Goldfinger's men, the troops opened the vault and rushed to disarm the bomb. An atomic specialist who accompanied the leader arrives with seconds to spare and simply turns off the device with the timer stopped on zero minutes and zero seven seconds. 007. Bond is invited to the White House for lunch with the president. However, Goldfinger hijacks the plane carrying Bond. In a struggle for Goldfinger's revolver, the gun fires, shooting out a window, creating an explosive decompression. Goldfinger is blown out of the cabin through the ruptured window. With the plane out of control, Bond rescues Galore and they parachute safely from the aircraft before it crashes into the ocean. A rescue helicopter passes over, but Bond claims they do not need to be rescued and they ignore it. And this isn't in the movie, but I'm sure him and the woman went back to some fancy hotel and had sex. And that's truly in the end of the movie. Now on to the last two parts of the Bond breakdown, the reception of the film and the impact and legacy that it left. Reception. Goldfinger was premiered in London on September 17, 1964, with general release in the United Kingdom the following day. Leicester Square was packed with sightseers and fans, and police were able to control the crowd due to the number of people. A set of glass doors to the cinema was accidentally broken, and the premiere was shown 10 minutes late because of the confusion. The United States premiere occurred on December 21, 1964. The film opened in 64 cinemas across 41 cities and eventually peaked at 485 screens. Goldfinger was temporarily banned in Israel because of Gert Frobe's connections with the Nazi party. The ban, however, was lifted many years later when a Jewish family publicly thanked Frobe for protecting them from persecution during World War II. The film grossed a total of $125 million from a $3 million budget which with inflation would equate to 800 plus million on a 24 million budget in today's U.S. dollar value. And now on to the final part of this, the impact and legacy. Goldfinger's script became a template for subsequent Bond films. It was the first of the series showing Bond relying heavily on technology, as well as the first to show a pre-credit sequence with only a tangential link to the main story. In this case, allowing Bond to get to Miami after a mission. Also, introduced for the first of many appearances is a briefing in Q Branch, allowing the viewer to see the gadgets in development. The subsequent films in the Bond series follow most of Goldfinger's basic structure, featuring a henchman with a particular characteristic, a Bond girl who is killed by the villain, big emphasis on the gadgets, and a more tongue-in-cheek approach, though trying to balance action and comedy. Goldfinger has been described as perhaps the most highly and consistently praised Bond picture of them all. And after Goldfinger, Bond became a true phenomenon. The success of the film led to the emergence of many other works in the espionage genre and parodies of James Bond, such as the Beatles film Help, as well as a spoof of Ian Fleming's first Bond novel, Casino Royale, in 1967. Indeed, it has been said that Goldfinger was the cause of the boom in espionage films in the 1960s, so much so that in 1966, moviegoers were offered no less than 22 examples of secret agent entertainment, including several blatant attempts to begin competing series, with James Coburn starring as Derek Flynn in the film Our Man Flint, and Dean Martin as Matt Helm. The 22nd Bond film, Quantum of Solace, includes an homage to the gold body paint death scene by having a female character dead on a bed nude, covered in crude oil. Outside the Bond films, elements of Goldfinger such as Odd Job and his use of his hat as a weapon, 
Bond removing his dry suit to reveal a tuxedo underneath, and the laser scene have been homaged or spoofed in works such as True Lies, The Simpsons, and the Austin Powers series. The U.S. television program Mythbusters explored many scenarios seen in the film, such as the explosive depressurization in a plane at high altitudes, the death by full body painting, an ejector seat in a car, and using a tuxedo under a dry suit. The success of the film led to Ian Fleming's Bond novels receiving an increase of popularity, and nearly 6 million books were sold in the United Kingdom in 1964, including 964,000 copies of Goldfinger alone. Between the years 1962 and 1967, a total of 22,792,000 Bond novels were sold. Folks, thank you so much uh, for listening to all my episodes, uh, but especially this one. I, I really, really like researching into the Bond films. Uh, I came to the game pretty late, to be honest with you. It started with Daniel Craig, and I said, you know, let me just go through uh, the Connery films and, and just go from there. Uh, I just thought this would be a really neat idea, and like I said before, it's 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 a, it's a, a short-term goal of mine to get to every seventh episode of my normal episodes. Uh, you know, get do six normal episodes in my podcast so that I can get to the Bond breakdown and kind of just dive into the story and rewatch the film and and experience uh, the Bond experience all again. And I just want to thank whoever's listening to this uh, so much. It, it means a lot. I mean, I know I don't have many listeners now. This is a fairly new podcast, but uh, when I look and I see the numbers that people are listening, it, it makes me feel good that I'm I'm entertaining people, but also hopefully turning them on to the Bond franchise, which I love. But yeah, that's uh that's that's the end of Bond Breakdown number three. I will see you on episode twenty two. Thanks very much and have a good day. Kiss of death from Mr.
Pretty girl, beware of this heart. 